and welcome to Saga Shorts, a new series where we review the thought here of medieval Iceland. I'm John. And I'm Andy. Now, if you're a regular listener of Saga Thing, you might be wondering why we're tackling yet another side project rather than pushing ahead toward our goal of reading all of the family sagas. Now, that would be a very fair question to ask. I think it would be. You'd probably only be asking that if you don't know anything about the Thatter, though. Uh, that's true. Uh, and if you know the Thatter, then a more appropriate question would be something like, why did it take you so long to get to the Thatter? Well, I mean, that's also a fair question, but I think it's still a legitimate question to ask why we're getting ourselves off track again. Yeah. But we have to say the Thatter have a lot to offer. Mm-hmm. They're like little bite-sized sagas, little Halloween fun-sized candies of sagas. <laughs> Uh, But don't let their little size fool you. They often feature the same wit, wisdom, feuding, bloodshed, adventure, revenge, true love, and (laughs) dynamic characters that we love about the longer sagas. Yes, they're just shorter and more self-contained. Right. Now, the word Thatir is actually the plural form of Thauter, uh, which literally means something like a single strand of rope. But it can also mean part, section, or chapter. For example, the Icelandic legal code often refers to individual sections of the code as Thatir. The usage of the term eventually evolved to designate the independent parts of larger manuscript compilations. Mm -hmm. Um, The easiest way to think about it for our purpose here in this series is that Thotir are the short stories or tales that sometimes accompany the sagas. Which is a pretty broad definition. Uh, yeah. Most of the, I, was go, I was going broad. Yeah. Most of the Thatcher that we're going to cover are independent episodes about Icelanders that tie into larger narratives, be they family sagas, king sagas, or even bishop sagas. Right. And we could go on and on about the complexities or the controversies that come with defining exactly what constitutes a Thouter. But one of the goals of Saga Shorts is to keep things short. That's, that's where the name comes from. Right. That, that's our hope anyway. Uh, But just in case anyone out there is interested, I'll include a bit of bibliography with this episode on some of the more important bits of Thatcher scholarship. But I do think that we should take a moment here just to lay out some of the subgenres of Thatcher that we're going to (laughs) encounter. This is how we end up doing long episodes, by the way. Uh This is how our other series called Saga Briefs ended up developing two two hour episodes. Yeah, but that won't happen here. Uh, Right. No, of course not. Um, so if we're going to do subgenres, we should say that even attempting to classify or identify individual groupings of Thatter is controversial. Yeah. It's one of the big debates among scholars, actually. Uh, what is or is not a Thatter remains open for debate. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at the question of how many Thatter there are in the corpus. Right? We can't even agree on that. Right. Back in 1935, and I realize as I'm saying that this is no longer a brief explanation, no. uh, but in 1935, Gudni Johnson identified 42 Thatter, most of which came from the King's Sagas and the Islendingasoga. Well, he's a pioneer. Right. Now, the complete Sagas of Icelanders set of books that you and I are using for our English reference includes 49 Thotter mm-hmm. uh, alongside the sagas. But Joseph Harris, who's probably one of the foremost experts on Thotter, if not the expert on Thotter, puts the number closer to 75. Yeah. And others, like Wolfgang Long, argue that there are more than 100. All true. And a lot of that depends on the rubric by which you define Thotter. And that's then complicated further by when the text you're assessing was written. The medieval Icelandic definition of Thauter was pretty open for a long time. And it wasn't until the later 13th century that authors began to distinguish the Thauter as something distinct. At that point, they started thinking of the Thauter as an independent episode. Right. And even then, the I mean, if we're going to say independent, the definition of independent is quite loose. Yeah. For example, the Thauter could be a relevant short story... But it then gets appended to the beginning or end of a saga. Right. Uh, we saw that with Spacer Thauter, which uh, was mm-hmm. appended to the end of Grete's saga. 
Right, yes. And we included that one as part of the saga itself, just as most editions do. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do uh, Thorstein Stauter Stangerhogs in this episode. And that one's clearly designed as a continuation of Vopnefeldinger Saga, which is part of why we chose it. I mean, hey, if we wanted to, we could also have done uh, Braunkrosser Thorter, which mm. uh, functions as a kind of prologue to Draplagosoner Saga, which we're going to be covering in our next episode mm. of Saga Thing. Tempting. Maybe we should just follow this up with that. Well, it does have some interesting elements. Uh, but we were talking about the definition of Thauter in the 13th century. Ah, uh, yes. It doesn't necessarily have to be separate from the main narrative. The Thauter could also be an independent episode within the saga itself. And we've seen this a lot as we've gone through the family sagas. There are any number of episodes that are introduced into a saga that are kind of sealed off and could really stand alone in stories. Yeah, that's right. They, they often feature a major figure of the saga, but they don't have to. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they're usually thematically relevant, but again, they don't have to be. Uh, a good example of this would be when uh, the Icelander travels abroad to make a name for himself in uh, foreign lands. It, it does happen a lot in the King sagas. I mean, you know, you know it's happening whenever the narrative pauses to introduce an Icelander and takes a bit longer than might feel natural. Mm-hmm. And making matters worse, a Thauter doesn't have to connect with any longer text at all. It doesn't have to be part of something else. Sometimes mm-hmm. the story just stands on its own. And there are lots Sometimes of good... Sometimes a Thauter ex- is just a Thauter. That's right. And there's lots of good examples of these kinds of Thauter in the Corpus. Right. So what we're saying here is there's no firm definition of what is or isn't a Thauter that'll work. Yeah. And that's kind of a problem. I'm so glad we went on this digression. <laughs> so what do we do now? Well, I, I think the answer is simple. Uh, we've both got the five-volume set of the complete sagas of the Icelanders, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it includes 49 Thatter for us to play with. So I say we work from those with the understanding that the number of possible texts is flexible beyond 49. Okay, now that sounds reasonable as long as we add the caveat that if we feel like doing something outside those 49, we can do that. That's why we keep it flexible. That's the kind mm-hmm. of freedom that we've got here. Isn't yep. that lovely? It is. I feel all relaxed. Ah, that's good. Uh, now, I like this because there's so many cool possibilities with the Thatcher. Mm-hmm. Just think of the places we'll go, John. <laughs> uh, there is a lot of variety to play with. It's one of the reasons why we wanted to do this series alongside Saga Thing. That and our tendency to get distracted by shiny objects. That's right. Yeah, I know we just got done talking about the dangers of classification when it comes to these Thatcher, but... I still think it would be worth reviewing some of the subgenres or categories that have been used to distinguish the various types of Thatcher we're going to encounter. All right. Well, if we're going to distinguish, uh, the first thing we should look at is setting. Mm-hmm. In some cases, the main action of a Thatcher takes place in Iceland. In most Thatcher, however, the majority of the action will take place abroad. Yeah. And we can take these distinctions a bit further if we adopt the seven types of Thatcher suggested by Joseph Harris. Uh, That could help our audience see some of the possible directions we're going to be heading while tackling these stories. Okay, uh, let's preface it by saying that while these categories work as a convenient starting point, they're only starting points. I mean, careful examination of any text likely will lead to exceptions or to overlaps in categorization. Oh, how academic of us. (laughs) All right, so the first category is the Islendingathater. These are the tales of the Icelanders. These often follow the exploits of an individual Icelander on his travels, typically to the court of a Scandinavian aristocrat of some kind. Uh, We've seen this kind of thing quite a bit as young men in the sagas leave Iceland to make a name for themselves abroad. So just think of the Islendingathater as self-contained Icelanders abroad episodes. Right. Um, And the second category is the conversion thotter. I wonder what those are about. Oh, they're all about economics and exchange rates. It's very boring stuff. No, they're not. (laughs) No. That's good, though. they're, They're exactly what you'd expect. Uh, the conversion thought or look at points of contact between pagan and Christian ideologies. 
Most of those are set in Norway rather than in Iceland. And the third category is going to feel very familiar. Um, it's the one we're, we're going to do today. It's the feud thatter. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are usually set in Iceland almost exclusively and read very much like short, short family sagas. Right. Uh, now, category four would be the uh, skald thotter. Uh, they focus on skaldic poems and their contexts. And category five is the dream thatter, which I think you're going to love, John. Oh, yeah. You know how much I love me some Icelandic dream visions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're so mystical and prophetic. Such fun. Aren't they, though? No. Uh, uh, category six is far more interesting to me. Although there aren't many of them. These are the other world journey thotter. I don't think I've read any of those. Yeah, they're, they kind of go alongside the uh, the losing saga, the lying sagas. Uh-huh. Uh, they're kind of extensions of medieval romance. Mm-hmm. So you can expect some journeys to the fairy world. Oh, lovely. Love fairies. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the uh, the seventh and final category is the Fornolder Thatter, or the legendary Thatter. These include uh, tales right. of heroes who do battle with monsters and other beasts. And these are usually quite a bit of fun. Yeah, I mean, in fact, if we hadn't already done so much work prepping the episode on the saga of the Sons of Droplock, we could do one of those. Mm. Uh, Thorstein's Thotter Uxafolts, uh, the tale of Thorstein Bullsleg, is one of the connected Thotter for that saga. You know, I wish we'd thought of this earlier and planned this all out better. That would be a fun one to do. I'm curious. Well, maybe after we finish Droplock's sort of saga. Uh, Thorstein Bullsleg is a, it's a pretty short one. Excellent. Okay. All right, John. Uh, there's a lot more we could say about Thatter as a genre, but uh, you can consult the bibliography and learn it all mm-hmm. yourself. Uh, I think it's high time we dive into our first Thouter. Couldn't agree more. Let's do it. The Tale of Thorstein Staffstruck. I can't think of a better Thouter to start the series with than the Tale of Thorstein Staffstruck. Yeah, it's one of the best examples of the genre. It's also one of the few Thatter that has attracted a lot of scholarly attention. I, well, I mean, a lot is relative. There's not exactly a yes, ton of scholarship true. on any thought that are out there. No, but uh, Thorstein Staffstruck is one of the champs of that small sampling of scholarship. Mm-hmm. And, and it's pretty well regarded by everyone. Uh, William Ian Miller devotes almost an entire chapter that is absolutely worth reading. If you're listening to this episode, oh, it's yeah, your first yeah. exposure to this Thouter, you should pick up a copy of Blood Taken and Peacemaking and read this chapter. Um, but listen to what he says about the Thouter. He says, The unknown author of this text was a master of his art, and Western literature would be hard-pressed to find a piece of short fiction any better. Ooh, now that's high praise. Indeed it is. Yeah, we did pick some slouch to represent the genre in our first episode of Saga Shorts. We're starting at the top. <laughs> well, you know, there's a problem with starting at the top. Uh, there's only one way to go from there. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, but there is another reason that we're starting with Thorstein Staffstruck. It's a continuation of the saga of the people of Vobnafjord. Yeah, as we were saying, uh, uh, Thorstein's tale begins sometime after Bjarni has already killed his foster father, Geir Ludingsen, and after Thorkel Gateson attempts to avenge that slaying at the Battle of Balthorsville. Which is great. Remember I said at the end of that episode that I wish we could spend more time with the characters. And here we are. I've been spending lots of time with Bjarni. He's uh, he's one of my crew now. Uh-huh. Uh, but this is your chance. We won't see many of the characters from that saga here. Uh, this is really about a farmer named Thorstein and his evolving conflict with the dangerous, the powerful Bjarni Brodhelgesen. And Bjarni is dangerous mainly because he is a big gothi in the district. He wields a lot of power. Uh, he's also got a reputation for being good with a sword when he needs to be, which uh, we saw in Vopnafir Thingasaga. 
That's right. Uh, and after ta- reading this tale again, I couldn't be more pleased with my choice of Bjarnius Thingman. Oh, be quiet. <laughs> I wanted to hear that. And how's, how's your little cleric doing? He's great. Uh, has he been too busy collecting herbs for you to develop a friendship yet? Oh, he makes a mean stew. Oh, that's delicious. All right, John, can we uh, can we just tell the story? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but first, we have to establish our standard of measurement for length in the Saga short series. Are we measuring the length of these tales? Really? Sure. I, I realize that, you know, when I say length of Saga shorts, it sounds like I'm <laughs> measuring the inseam. Uh, <laughs> but no, we have to know how they stack up against each other, right? Not really. Oh. But uh, you go ahead. What's our standard of measurement we're going to use here? Well, I gave this a lot of thought. Uh, oh, I'm sure you did. Yeah. Uh, between 3.30 and 3.35 this afternoon. Uh, <laughs> and I <laughs> I determined that it would be appropriate to to maintain some consistency. So we're going to measure in Hravenkels. Uh, close. We're going to measure in Desahravenkels. What are you talking about? What is a Desahravenkel? I think it's pretty self-explanatory. It's a tenth of a Hravenkel. No, why couldn't we just call it like a, a fraction of a Hravenkel measurement? A, 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 a FHM. I think that sounds nice. I think that sounds unnecessarily convoluted. Uh, and <laughs> I'm in charge of measurements. So I say Desahravnkel. Well, couldn't we just tighten it up a bit? It sounds so clunky. What about a Desikel? Which I like just as well, because then it's uh, then I get to do, do a bad Decibel joke. Oh, okay, fine. So uh, are we going with Desahravnkels or Desikels? Desikel is fine. Beautiful. Okay, so how many As decikels? long as we occasionally reference that it's uh, actually a Hravnkel. <laughs> how many uh, Desikels? is Thorstein Stouter Stangerhoeks. Well, the tale itself is uh, 2,620 words. We plug that into the formula, we get 2.87 decikels. Oh, how exciting. All right, I think everyone will be surprised to hear that this tale starts with a short genealogy. I feel like you kind of stepped on my decikel measurement there, but all right. I'm just kind of Uh, moving (laughs) us along. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm not shocked to hear this begins with a genealogy. It is an Icelandic story after all. Yeah, but check this out, John. It's a short genealogy. Mm-hmm. We're used to the kind of expansive genealogies that trace three or more generations. And this one is just a father and son. We've sure. got an old man named Thororin. He was once a great Viking, but now he's a stubborn, old, grumpy man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe he's blind as well. And then we have his son, Thorstein. Uh, he's a strong and even-tempered man, and that's about it. And yeah, that's it. A father and a son. I said it was easy. Yeah, I'm sure people are relieved, actually. <laughs> well, they deserve a break after what they've been yeah, through. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to lull them into this, and then we're going to get to drop loggers on the saga <laughs> and blow their socks off. Just knock them off. Uh, so from the very beginning of the story, we can see some themes being established. Mm-hmm. Uh, right from the first paragraph, we're told that Thorstein is a hard worker. We're also told that his family is not wealthy. Uh, they do have some excellent stud horses, and they make money selling stallions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the author doesn't make a big deal out of their financial situation. Uh, just like in the sagas, it mm-hmm. pays to have a keen eye for detail, though. You've got to pick out a thread where you see it and then see where it takes you. So pay right. attention to wealth in this saga. And this one does pay off. Is that a money pun? <laughs> no, actually. It's just a coincidence for once. All right, but I'm watching you. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Saga Shorts, not Saga Thing, so you got to be careful with your hey terrible jokes. Uh, now, we are quickly introduced to a handful of other men. The first one is Thord. Uh, he's the one we want to pay attention to. He's described as an overbearing man, an Oyafnader mother, mm-hmm. uh, who cared for the horses of Bjarni Brodhelgesen's farm. Right. Now, there are two other men, Thorhall and Thorvald, and I know the Thor names can occasionally become a bit much. Pretty much uh, every single one has been a Thor name so far. Right. Uh, these guys also work for Bjarni, and they love to gossip. 
Mm-hmm. Now, things happen pretty fast in this story because by the middle of the first page, we're already into the action. Mm-hmm. Thorstein, our protagonist, and Thord, Bjarni's horse guy, arrange a horse fight. Horse guy? Mm-hmm. Valet, I think is the... <laughs> I don't think he's a valet. He monitors the horses, takes care right. of them. Groomsman. Groomsman, that's fair. There you go. There you go. Um, well, we've mentioned horse fighting a bit over the years, largely because it was a popular form of entertainment for Saga Age Icelanders. Yeah. It was so important, in fact, that both the Gragas and Jón's book include specific laws about horse fighting. Uh, the Gragas, for example, contains information about the value of livestock, and in that list, we see that fighting horses are far more valuable than regular horses. And Jón's book describes in detail the strict rules concerning bad behavior at horse fights. The whole thing starts to seem like the way we in the modern age treat like horse racing, hmm. right? Purebred uh, racing horses are much more valuable than a regular horse, and there are all kinds of concern about misbehavior at uh, betting parlors. Right. Um, only it's a major, major part of Icelandic culture, whereas it's mm-hmm. not as big now. Right. Um, uh, and you can find uh, places around the world, I think, in, in Asia. There are parts of Asia where horse fighting is still a, a kind of a big deal. Mm. But uh, Mongolia, this horse, I think, right? Yeah. Uh, this horse fight is actually going to break some of those rules. Um, Thord's horse isn't doing well, you see. Oh, dear. And rather than sit back and let his horse get beaten by Thorstein's superior stallion, Thord steps in and strikes Thorstein's horse in the jaw with his prod. But this then, <laughs> it prompts, wait, you, wait, tag him in? Like this is. <laughs> you're not supposed. I said it breaks the rules. You're not supposed mm-hmm. to jump in and hit the other person's horse. Uh, but that prompts Thorstein to jump in and hit Thord's horse. Now the fighting kind of shifts to the people. Right, uh, right. Everyone in the crowd's getting excited. They start shouting. Thord's horse uh, runs off, mm. but Thord isn't quite finished with Thorstein yet. He steps forward and strikes Thorstein on the brow so hard with his horse prod that the skin above Thorstein's eye tears and slips down, Ooh. blocking his vision. Now, that's not only gruesome, uh, it's a cause for some major retaliation. Well, you'd think so. But Thorstein just cuts a part of his shirt off, bandages his brow, and then walks away. And uh, he also stops to ask people not to tell his father about the incident. Oh, that's not good. No, no, it's not. And as you'd expect, Don't tell dad I was out. Yeah. Don't tell dad I got hit in the face. Um, as you'd expect, rumor flies. Thorvald and Thorhall in particular, these are mm-hmm. the two gossips on Bjarni's farm, have a great time going back and forth about this mm. fight. And somewhere along the way, they come up with the nickname Staffstruck for Thorstein. Right. Now, we probably don't need to point out that this is not a complimentary nickname. Uh, nicknames acknowledging a blow received aren't necessarily pejorative or a serious insult. A lot depends on the spirit in which they're given and received. Right? Think of Thorgir Bottleback in Greta's saga. Sure. Yeah. The, the incompetent assassin who tried to kill him buried an axe in the wine sack on Thorger's back. The nickname Bottleback makes a joke of Thorger taking a blow, but the joke isn't primarily on him. It's on the assassin. Right. Uh, in this case, though, there's clearly a malicious quality to the farmhand's gossip. Thorstein isn't going to be thrilled with his new name. Well, this nickname sticks, mm-hmm. and soon everyone knows what happened. Right. Now, the story jumps forward a bit to the next winter just before Yule. Thorstein has risen early to help carry in the hay. Uh, he's laying on a bench, exhausted from the work, when his father, Thorarin, comes in. Why are you on your feet so early, son? He asks. I don't think there are many others around here to do the work that must be done, 
which could be perceived as an insult against Thorarin, who who doesn't work at all, even right. though he's, and I, you know he's blind. Right. Well, well, well I think it's because he's elderly. Uh, well, he's elderly and else. blind. Neither well, helps. I would point out that we saw uh, Thorstein the White doing the work of running a farm uh, mm-hmm. despite blindness. Right. It's, well, I he. This is a question of being elderly because we've got. Um, uh, someone like Ale as well takes these insults about being useless because he's too old to work. Yeah. Uh, although it's worth pointing out that Ale also loses his sight, so perhaps we're both right. Uh, I think Thorarin does take it as an insult right? because he he does snap back. What can you tell me, son, about the horse fight that took place last summer? Weren't you knocked unconscious like a dog? <laughs> now, well, Thorstein tries to play it off. He claims that Thor's blow was probably an accident. He didn't mean it. It's not uh-huh. an attack, Dad. Right. It's an accident. I want to know what exactly goes on on that farm that uh, Thorarin's go-to metaphor is knocked unconscious like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> what well, are you they know, doing to their dogs? Sometimes those dogs yip a little bit. Oh, oh. Got to teach them who's boss. Yeah, now, Thorarin isn't buying this. Speaking of yipping, he's not buying uh, Th- uh, Thorstein's yipping. He says, I would not have thought that I'd have a coward for a son. And there's a little exchange, but Thorarin has done his job. Thorstein gets up, grabs his weapons, and stomps off to meet Thor at Bjarni's farm. Yeah, I like how the author keeps subtly dropping Bjarni in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he's not a player in the story yet. He's just casually mentioned in context, uh, almost like part of the background. Mm-hmm. And, and he is in the background, but not for long. Uh, he, he's a force that looms over everything that has happened and will happen here. Well, the interesting thing about that is that it actually means that Bjarni ends up standing in for one of those Norwegian lords or kings, right? Many of the Thotter, it's an Icelander, a clever Icelander who ends up um, making a Norwegian lord or king look bad. Yeah, that's true. With his his wit or with his abilities. And Bjarni is going to kind of stand in for that Norwegian lord. So he's being kind of set up here as being a very powerful man who is almost like an eminence grease, right? He's kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, Yeah, and we'll see if he gets made... A fool of, or if uh, he, right. he plays a more significant role. Right. Uh, now, when Thorstein actually arrives at the farm and sees Thord, uh, he doesn't exactly prove his mettle right away. Rather than jumping into action or demanding compensation for the humiliation, Thorstein moves to avoid conflict again. Right. He says, I was wanting to know, Thord, my friend, uh, whether that blow I took from you at the horse fight, was that an accident or was it dealt intentionally? And, and if it was intentional, would would you be willing to compensate me for it? Oof. Oh no, that's that that that's not how you do it, Thorstein. <laughs> no, notice the use of the passive voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, Thorstein, he just doesn't have it. Right, he's now, not Thor, his father's Viking son. No, uh, but unfortunately for him, Thord isn't afraid and is a little more aggressive. He says, "Well, I'll tell you what, Thorstein. If you have two mouths, then put your tongue in each of them." And say with one that it was an accident, if you like, and with the other that it was dealt in earnest. And that's all the compensation you're going to get from me. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if that's a great line or not. It's it's confusing. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's it, I don't know. Yeah, I've got it. Creates a very strange visual image. <laughs> it certainly does. But uh, that's when Thorstein strikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he leaps at Thord and cuts him down, and that's that. Thord's dead, and Thorstein's a man now. Oh, come on. This isn't like his bar mitzvah. <laughs> ah, it is. It's to just his an father, act of it violence. is. Violence does not make a man, Andy. Mm. Uh, but I realize that that's kind of how the saga, the thotter treats this. Uh, it's mm-hmm. followed by a weird scene. Thorstein goes to the house and tells a woman outside that Thord had been gored by a bull, which is his sort of odd way of reporting the killing. 
Yeah. But the woman isn't terribly interested in the report. She tells Thorstein to go home and leave her alone, and she'll tell Bjarni when she's good and ready. Only she never really gets around to waking Bjarni and telling him. No. Later that morning, Bjarni gets up and starts asking where Thord was. Uh, and eventually the woman overhears Bjarni asking about him. And she suddenly remembers and reports the killing. She says, it's true we're often reminded that we women aren't very smart. Thorstein Staffstruck was here and said that Thord had been gored by a bull. I didn't want to wake you. And then I forgot. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, great job, lady. <laughs> now, I, I can't tell what I, I... Every time I read this, I'm a little bit confused. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to take from this exchange? Was she deliberately withholding the information? Was she genuinely afraid to wake Bjarni up? Or is this just a ditzy woman? What's, what's no, going on? No, um, I, I I picture her theatrically slapping her forehead when she says this. Oh, right? dear. Um, I think, uh, I think uh, William A. Miller has a good take on this. In Blood Taking and Peacemaking, he writes... To this woman's mind, Thord's death is not sufficient cause to wake Bjarni. Right? So it's, mm. In other words, it's a commentary on Thord's worth yeah, rather than not, on the situation. Not worth it. Right. Uh, and in her answer, go on home. I'll tell him when I want to. We get a sense of her character. I mean, she's a person somewhat resentful of her structural situation as a servant and as a woman. She's being ordered around by a penniless farmer's son from a neighboring uh, home. But she's also someone like the wife of Bath, who's able to draw from a stock of anti-feminist cliches to deny accountability for a decision she alone has made. Mm. Uh, as, as Miller says, we get enough sense of this woman to see that she's too smart to have forgotten about Thord's death. But in claiming that she's forgotten, she's able to make an announcement of her own assessment of Thord's character to Bjarni. Mm. William Ian Miller's a smart guy. There he is. Well, well we mentioned earlier that Bjarni was lurking in the background. And now he's arrived in the story. Mm-hmm. One of his men has been killed on his property, and Bjarni is understandably upset. Well, so he, he's a little upset. Again, no. I think everyone agrees that Thord is not a tremendous loss to the community. That's true, but he does prepare a lawsuit against Thorstein sure. for the killing and yep. very easily has him outlawed. Right, and, and that is surprising. Yeah, one of the issues here is that that Thorstein's family isn't it doesn't have the resources or the connections to really mount a, a countersuit or right. to defend themselves. So right. it's an easy pickings for Bjarni. Sure, it's not surprising he loses the case. What is surprising is that Thorstein doesn't leave his father's farm. Yeah, that is. He, he just continues living and working there like nothing happened. So is that a slap in the face to Bjarni's authority? I mean, it could certainly be read that way, but Bjarni doesn't seem terribly concerned. He doesn't do a thing about it. And that's what gets people talking. Well, that gets our old gossips, Thorhall and Thorvald, talking. Yeah. Uh, in autumn, Bjarni finds them sitting around a fire roasting sheep heads, mm, yeah. as one does. Bjarni lays down nearby where they can't see him and listens to the conversation. Yeah, these two aren't very nice. And and on the subject yeah. of sheep's heads, yeah. um, I've, I've, I know that that's a kind of a, a thing that, that they eat in, in Iceland mm-hmm. and other parts of the world. Um, but I heard that cheek meat is some of the best meat that you can get on an animal. And yes, I wonder, is that part of why the, the heads are a big, a big deal? Well, tender, but not fatty. I think yeah. is the idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, the, yeah, I think there's a lot of good meat on a head. Um, but also, you know, it is also, you'll note it's usually servant's duty to, to do this. You have to sort of yeah. roast, you know, roasting the head is not a fun job, I think. Yeah, uh, but get us back to the Statler and Waldorf of Bjarni's <laughs> yeah, farm. So uh, Statler and Waldorf are sitting there and they say, we never expected when we were hired at Killer Bjarni's that we'd be roasting sheep heads here while his outlaw Thorstein's roasting the heads of geldings. Oh. It would have been better of him to yield more to his kinsmen in Bodvarsdal 
than to have this outlaw living like his equal in Sunadal. Now, those are some serious accusations. Um, yeah. First of all, note the use of the nickname Killer Bjarni here. We haven't yeah. heard that nickname before, and this is the only time we see it used in this story. But it speaks to how nicknames could be used within specific contexts. They would certainly never use this nickname within Bjarni's earshot, at least not knowingly. Among themselves, however, they can take all the ironic shots they want at Bjarni in his honor. Mm-hmm. And as well as Bjarni handled himself at the battle against Thorkel Gateson at the Battle of Boldvistal, uh, this reveals something of the stain that conflict left on Bjarni's reputation, regardless of the fact that Thorkel was the aggressor. Well, it's also possible that the killer Bjarni nickname uh, recalls the slaying of Gator, right? his foster father and uncle. Either way, it's a nickname that uh, Bjarni can't uh, carry around happily. <laughs> well, well, what's he going to do about it, though? Well, there's not much he can do about perceptions of that event. But he can erase the perception that he's become soft now. All he has to do is deal with the Thorstein problem. And that's assuming he really wants to. Although sure. we, should, we should mention that uh, public perception of Bjarni isn't all bad. Uh, we've no. been talking about Thorvald and Thorhall's critique of his leadership. And we know that they're not the greatest guys. Uh, there is another man there who hears this and steps up to Bjarni's defense. Right. That's a, that's a cool moment. Um, he says, that kind of thing was worse le- said than unsaid. And trolls must have pulled your tongues out of your mouths. We feel that Bjarni doesn't want to deprive a blind father and other dependents there in Sunadal of their bread and butter. Which is really interesting to me because it speaks to some of the complexities of leadership a Gothi might face. Mm-hmm. If this man is correct, Bjarni's willing to let an outlawed man live in his district at a cost to his own reputation simply out of the goodness of his heart. He's putting others before himself. A remarkably noble quality for the son of Brodhelgi. I don't think it's that surprising, though. I mean, remember, Bjarni's the same guy that immediately repented the killing of Gator and cradled his head in his lap as he died. Mm, the head that he split open, but yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> he also forgave Thorkel for the vendetta and invited him to live at Hof. I know. I, I said last time I really liked Bjarni. I almost took him as Thingman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this kind of thing, it just makes me like him more. Well, I'm happy you said that. I remember that at the quarter court. Okay, well, let's just get to the end of the story before we start fawning all over Bjarni. Uh, the, the, the morning after this little exchange, Bjarni wakes up very, very early, mm-hmm. and he calls Thorhall and Thorvald to a meeting. Now, just imagine their faces when Bjarni approaches. <laughs> They've got to know something's up being woken up this early. And if they don't, Bjarni makes it very clear that he overheard them the previous night. He says, You two seem to me the most likely pair to wipe the stain for my honor, if I don't have the strength to do it myself. And then he tells them to run over to Sunadol and bring back Thorstein's head by breakfast time. <laughs> so much for peace-loving Bjarni, huh? Well, so much for the old blind man at Sunadol and his dependents. It's game time now. Yeah, well, I think we, I think we have to wait and see. Uh, Bjarni knows what kinds of men he's sending. Uh, we have to see how this plays out. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you a hint. It doesn't turn out well at all. Yeah, no. It seems that there was a tiger hiding somewhere within the timid little Thorstein. Uh-huh. Killing Thord brought it out, and now he's a force to be reckoned with, it seems. The two fools rush over to Sunadol and lure Thorstein out into a field under the pretenses of looking for some horses. Now, once they have him in the hayfield, they attack Thorstein at the same time. Thorvald strikes with his axe, but Thorstein blocks him with his arm before he can land the blow. Mm-hmm. And Thorvald is quickly dispatched after that. Thorhall doesn't fare any better... And pretty soon, Thorstein's killed them both. And then he puts both men on their horses and sends them back to Hof, letting Mm. Bjarni know exactly how the plan (laughs) turned out. 
this is one of the great moments in this thotter. Uh, it's also one of the more bold actions in the story. Uh, yeah. Bjarni's not a man to be messed with. It's one thing to kill his assassins. It's another thing entirely to hang their corpses over the backs of their horses and send them home. Yeah. Everyone on Bjarni's farm is going to see that and know what it means. Yeah, it's a slap in the face to Bjarni, no matter how you look at it, especially mm-hmm. since it comes from a lowly farmer. But you would expect Bjarni to act immediately to resolve the situation, but once again we see something of his character emerge. He says nothing at all. He has the two scoundrels buried, and then goes on with his life. Now, that's good, but it doesn't mean that people are going to stop talking. Haven't they what? learned that gossiping on this farm is not smart? It's not a good idea. Now, one <laughs> evening around Yule, Bjarni and his wife Ronveg are in bed. Now, she points out to him that people have been talking about the Thorstein mm. situation quite a lot more than anything else these days. Right, that doesn't phase Bjarni. He says, many people's words sound like nonsense to me. Hey, that's something I say all the time. <laughs> but uh, I'm not sure that I believe Bjarni here. He did task two henchmen with killing Thorstein after he heard the similar gossip. Yeah, no, but I, as I said, I think we can ask whether he intended for them to kill Thorstein if he was giving Thorstein the opportunity to solve a problem for him. Mm. Right. Those two were bad for business, and I think we probably can guess that Bjarni knew exactly how competent or incompetent they were at fighting. Sending them to <laughs> Thorstein allowed him to clean things up without getting his hands dirty. That's quite possible, but that doesn't change perception. Ronveig points out that Bjarni has a serious problem developing. Just like Gaetir in Vultnafer the Saga, Bjarni now has a problem with his own Thingmen because he refuses to act on this issue. She says, Your Thingmen do not think that they can count on you for support as long as this goes unavenged. You do wrong and leave right undone. That's a nice phrase there. I like it too. And Bjarni says, Now the saying applies that no one learns from another's mistakes. But I will heed what you're telling me, even though Thorstein has killed few innocent men. Which, by the way... I think I think it's more evidence that Thorstein killing those three guys doesn't really bother him very much. They all have right. it coming. Yeah, I agree. Uh, again, no matter how nice or noble or just Bjarni may be, though, he's still got an image problem. And at some point, he's mm-hmm. got to address this, whether he wants to or not. Right. So in the morning, he wakes up, takes his shield down off the wall. When Ronvig asks him where he's going, he says, mm, Thorstein and I are going to settle this matter. How many men are you taking with you? I'm not going to lead an army against Thorstein. I'm going alone. Don't risk your life alone against the weapons of that horrible man. Now, aren't you being like those women who urge one moment what they regret the next? Well, I've listened to enough taunting, both from you and from others, and it won't do you any good to try and stop me when I want to go. See, isn't that awesome? Yeah, I I know this episode's kind of dialogue heavy, but these exchanges are just too great to gloss over. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're him. both getting good lines. It's a good yeah. dialogue back and forth. So Bjarni marches over to Sunadal and finds Thorstein standing in the doorway. Bjarni challenges him to single combat on the hill in the hayfield. And here's when the tiger within Thorstein comes raging out once again. No, right? no, no, no. That's when Thorstein sheepishly says, I am not prepared to fight you. Mm. I'll tell you what, I will leave Iceland on the first ship. Please just provide for my father when I'm gone. Yeah, the uh, the tiger's back in the cage now that it's facing a chieftain, it seems. Yeah. Uh, well, there, Bjarni, there is some, some deference here, right? Yeah, yeah. But the chieftain, Bjarni, can't step down, right? He no. insists on following through on the challenge. He does agree to wait long enough for Thorstein to speak with his father just one more time. And Thorstein's father isn't exactly the most comforting guide in his son's moment of need. No. He says, 
Anybody who tangles with a more powerful man in his own district and has dishonored him can't expect to wear out too many shirts. All right. First of all, if we had a notable witticism category for the thotter, that would be a clear winner. Absolutely. It's a great line. But I have to also say, what the heck? I mean, this is the same <laughs> father who's been shaming him for not avenging yeah, right? the insult. Well, I guess maybe throwing those bodies on the horses and sending them back. Yeah, maybe not the best bitch. idea there. <laughs> um, oh, and uh, Thorarin uh, concludes his chat with Thorstein by offering these encouraging words. Mm-hmm. Take your weapons and defend yourself bravely. For I would never have stooped before a man like Bjarni in my day, even though he's a great champion. Still, I would rather lose you than have a coward for a son. Come back with your shield or on it, Spartan. That's right. Yeah, thanks, Dad. I'm so glad I've been looking out for you all these years, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we said he was a grumpy old Viking. Uh, mm-hmm. He's he's not really set up as a nice guy. Right. Uh, after this, uh, Bjarni and Thorstein head over to the hill in the hayfield and begin wailing on each other. Uh, time passes without either one really doing any more than damaging the other man's protective gear. Uh, and at some point, Bjarni asks for a break so he can get some water. Yeah, and what happens next is kind of surprising. And it's one of the nice touches of the storyteller that Miller hinted at in his praise of the tale. Mm-hmm. The two men walk over to a brook for a drink. Bjarni puts his sword down and leans over to quench his thirst. That's when Thorstein picks up Bjarni's sword. And you're pausing there on purpose, aren't you? I am, yes. It's dramatic <laughs> but tension. Of course, people have read this having seen the title, and everyone knows what comes next. Well, all right. Uh, Thorstein looks at the sword and says, You could not have had this sword with you at Baldvarsdal. Ah, see, he doesn't kill his enemy, even ah. though he has him at a disadvantage. Not only that, he seems to imply that Bjarni's going easy on him by using a weak or dull sword. And mm-hmm. in addition to that, he's also bringing up, so there's a, both a compliment here, perhaps, uh, but mm-hmm. also a uh, a reminder of the Boldvarsal incident. So potentially insulting right. as well. Right, right. Uh, now, whatever, whichever it is, a compliment or insult, uh, Bjarni doesn't respond. He finishes his drink, and the two men trudge back up the hill to continue the fight. And the exchange blows for a little while longer. Bjarni is impressed by Thorstein's skill, and after some time passes... Bjarni asks for another break. Yeah, I think somewhere in there, uh, Bjarni says something like, uh, I'm not as used to work as you are, which is mm-hmm. uh, an insult about, uh, you know, uh, Bjarni doesn't have to work. In fact, he gets to stay well, asleep. But until- is that is that an insult or is that kind of a self-deprecating you uh, yeah, know, you're right. Bit of bit of charm, right? Uh, you know, uh, like oh, you know, I've let myself get a little soft. <laughs> That's true, and it could be both. It could be both, mm-hmm. which is kind of the, one of the cool things about this exchange. Uh, but this time, uh, Bjarni's shoelace has come undone. Uh-huh. Thorstein agrees to let him tie it, at which point <laughs> Bjarni bends down in front of Thorstein, clearly leaving himself open to a beheading if uh, Thorstein wants to do it. <laughs> right, but he doesn't. Uh, instead, Thorstein walks back to the house and comes back with two shields and a sword. Oh, what a guy. He han- yeah, he hands a-, a new shield to Bjarni as well as a new sword. Yeah, he says, here is a shield and a sword from my father, and this one will not be blunted any more than the one you've already got. I do not want to suffer your blows without a shield anymore, but I would gladly have us end this game. I am afraid your good fortune will accomplish more than my bad luck today. Right. In other words, these are gifts, and Thorstein is uh, giving in. Yeah, of course he is. Although, I I have to wonder whether he's giving in out of exhaustion and fear, or out of respect for Bjarni. Mm -hmm. These two are not equals, remember. Right, no, but they appear to be equals in battle. 
and appears is important. Yeah. I don't know if it's more important than the difference in their status, but of course, that's a question the story wants us to consider. Mm-hmm. But Bjarni still isn't having it, and the fight resumes. First, Bjarni chops Thorstein's shield away from him, and then Thorstein does the same to Bjarni. Mm-hmm. Now you're swinging, says Bjarni. And you did not deal a lighter blow, said Thorstein. You see, they're both playing a game here. Neither one right. has been giving his all up to now. Right. I am not left-handed. <laughs> uh, now, now that they're both without shields, and they've both finally put some muscle behind their blows, Bjarni calls it a day. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason for this may be because Thorstein offered self-judgment. Um, but mm. I should add, it was his turn to strike at Thorstein. Thorstein doesn't have a shield. He could have ended it right there by killing him. Right. Right. It's true enough. Uh, instead, he says, it would be a poor bargain to choose a crime over good luck. I will consider myself fully compensated for my three farmhands if you'll promise me your loyalty. Oh, that's so sweet. And Thorstein does swear his loyalty. Bjarni is thoroughly impressed with the quality of Thorstein's character. Yeah, and then something weird happens. Uh, they sit together on the hillside, making daisy chains and watching the sunset no, together. No, no, no. No? Uh, Bjarni asks Thorstein if he can be the one to go and report the results of the combat to Thorarin, uh, Thorstein's grumpy retired Viking father. Yeah, and this whole exchange is really awkward, and I, I I'm not sure exactly yeah. how it fits in. Uh, Bjarni enters the house by himself and approaches the bed closet where Thorarin is lying. Right, Thorarin is elderly and blind, remember, so he can only hear someone coming. He asks who it is, and Bjarni identifies himself. What news, Bjarni, my friend? Your son Thorstein's death. Now, see, that's cruel. What is the point of saying he's well, dead? If he's not dead. I know. It, it, I think there is a point, but we have to follow it through. All right. So Thorarin responds, did he put up a good defense? Well, I don't think any man has been as keen in battle as your son Thorstein. And Thor- Thorarin is obviously pleased with that report. Uh, and then Bjarni invites Thorarin to join him at Hof. You shall hold one of the two seats of honor as long as you live, and I will be like a son to you. Now that is a generous offer. Mm-hmm. He's going to replace the son that is presumably lost, though he's not right. lost. Uh, Thorarin, though, doesn't necessarily see it that way. And this is one of the more kind of talked about lines in the saga. He says, I'm in a position of someone who has no power, and only a fool rejoices in promises. Besides, the promises of you chieftains are such, when you want to comfort a man after you've done something like this, that your relief lasts only a month. Then we are treated like paupers, and with that, our injuries are soon forgotten. Right. Now, that's about as harsh as Bjarni's offer is generous. Uh, But I do want to point out that this is taking place in the northeastern part of Iceland. Yeah. We're we're in that section. It's the same area where Hrabenkel's saga took place. You begin to wonder if there's a tradition in that region of these kind of informal arrangements. Uh, This is very similar to the offer that uh, Hrabenkel made to Einar's father mm-hmm. right, after accidentally, or not accidentally, but after regretfully <laughs> killing Einar. Uh, that this kind of informal arrangement of, I'll pay for you as if you were my own retired father. Yeah. Uh, it's something that seems to be a theme of the sagas from the Northeast. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And there's there's all these power dynamics at work that are that are really yeah. fascinating. I mean, we should yeah. talk about them when we get a chance. But uh, let's finish this up. Uh, Thorarin wraps that insult up with a compliment to Bjarni and mm-hmm. says, you're not that kind of man. 
and he then accepts the offer. So all's <laughs> going to work out well, oh. right? Right. So he was talking about other bully chieftains, not Bjarni. Of course. Only there's one one thing. What's that? Well, Thorarin wants to, you know, be a man and shake on it. Oh, sure. So he says... That's reasonable. Yeah. He says, you'll have to come close because this old man's very shaky on his feet from age and poor health. <laughs> and I'm not quite free yet from being affected by my son's death. Oh, Thorarin. No, 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 no. And when Bjarni steps in, Thorarin reaches for a sword and tries to stab him. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> One last strike for the oh, old Viking. It's great. It's fantastic. Uh, Bjarni realizes this is what's happening and he leaps back. You miserable old fart, he says. <laughs> now you'll get what you deserve. Your son Thorstein's alive and he's going to live with me at Hoff. You'll be given slaves to do your farm work and you won't lack anything as long as you live. See, <laughs> it's always funny to me because I feel like it goes from really, really harsh punishment to not that bad very quickly. Right. I think it's actually there's a there's a part of Bjarni that's really like that takes this as a kind of amusing little exchange. Oh, absolutely. Right. That this is it's it's the miserable old fart is even just kind of a like ah you Yeah, I gotcha. I knew you were gonna ah, do that. You you almost <laughs> got me there. Um, but in any case, I mean he is making an offer, but right? he's going to uh provide for Thorarin, but not the way he would have if things had gone better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a difference there. And mm-hmm. Thorstein does go to live at Hof with Bjarni. Right, and the two live happily ever after. Actually, they do live happily ever after. Yeah. I think this is something that we probably just need to acknowledge quickly, that the, the Thotter, unlike the sagas, frequently do end more or less happily, right, without a tragic ending. Yeah. Uh, it'll maybe be a nice relief once in a while when we do these shorts to have right. an, a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, lesson learned, everyone's happy. So they skip mm-hmm. off into the sunset. Now, th- this tale ends with a report that Bjarni's reputation was cleared and, and his mm-hmm. honor increased over time, and he became more and more popular the older he got. Uh, he deals with problems. That's my thing, man. <laughs> he deals with problems better than anyone, it says, and eventually turned to religion in his later days. Mm-hmm. And he makes he even makes a pilgrimage to Rome, and he dies on their journey home. Right, and according to the author, he's buried in a city called Viteri, not, uh, not far from Rome. And then we get a long genealogy connecting Bjarni to many illustrious and important people. And we're going to skip all of that. Mm -hmm. So that's it. The end of the tale of Thorstein Staffstruck. It's a great story. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. Uh, Well, what did you want to talk about? How do you want to do this? Well, I'll be honest with you. We we promised that we were going to keep this short, and it's already longer Mm -hmm. than I thought it would be. (laughs) (laughs) So rather than dig into some of the finer points in scholarship and extend the conversation that way, I thought maybe we'd Mm -hmm. keep it simple um, and have a brief discussion like we used to at Willington Pizza back in Connecticut. Ah, there you go. Yeah, we can can use the questions uh, that Jonas Christensen and William Ian Miller both include in their review of the story to kind of stimulate this conversation. Okay, great. What's the first question? All right, so – Jonas Christensen starts with this. He says, this is one of those complex stories which prompt mm-hmm. questions and reflections. And I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. His first question is, it's a series of questions, really. So I'll go through a couple of them to save okay. us some time. Did Bjarni, who was the older man, really get tired? Or was he only testing Thorstein by implying his need for intermissions? And was he testing both his sense of honor and his courage before offering him a place in his service? Why didn't Thorstein take advantage of Bjarni when he drank from the brook or tied his shoe? So, basically, the question there is, what's going on in that final scene when right. the two are battling with each other? Well, I think 
I mean, obviously, this requires a great deal of uh, supposition, right? Because that we aren't given any information about what lies behind the things they're saying and doing. Uh, I'll take them in reverse order with the understanding that I'm supposing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, to take the third one first, uh, I think that Thorstein, who we've seen, is not naturally an aggressive and violent person. Definitely not. Uh, one... He's simply not the kind of person who would attack an unarmed man, uh, especially not an unarmed man who he suspects has been going easy on him. Yeah, definitely uh, not. And especially not an unarmed man or, or a, a a defenseless man who may or may not be testing him. Right? If Thorstein's at all bright, he has to realize the possibility that Bjarni's testing him and that if he takes a swing... Bjarni might suddenly turn out not to be as tired as he appears to be. Absolutely. Although I think, you know, that fr- could end badly for him. From, from Bjarni's perspective, what I think is interesting is that mm-hmm. Bjarni seems to be looking for Thorstein to actually do something real, to show his mettle in some way. Mm-hmm. Not in doing something nefarious, so that's why you have those tests in there. He's testing his honor. But he wants him to hit hard mm-hmm. so that he can he, so that he can trust that this is, you know, for lack of a better term, this is a real man that I'm dealing with. But right. an honorable one. Right. And yeah, and I think, you know, it's the... Action is important, but the inaction is important too, right? He he tests him to see whether he will stand and not take action when there's a helpless man before him. Yeah. But then also wants to see whether he can hit hard and uh, take the shield off of a man standing opposite him. Uh, now, as for whether Bjarni is faking, short answer, yes. Yeah, I think absolutely um, he is. I mean, you know, is it possible that he's a tired fellow a few, uh, an hour or so into this fight? Yeah, of course it is. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just speak as a middle-aged man here. You know, I, I, I'm a little tired by the end of the day, and I'm not swinging a sword <laughs> at people. True, uh, but your middle age is very different from Bjarni's middle age. That's a, that's a fair point. Fair. That's a fair point. Um, my, I'm obviously in much better shape. Uh, but <laughs> uh, so is it possible that Bjarni doesn't mind? You know that he likes that he have a test where he also gets to take a break. Uh, this is just a win-win for him. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think he's absolutely he's trying to find out what kind of a man he's facing. Yeah, I think so. Um, and it's it's a really clever little dance that they're doing there because yeah, it doesn't really end until Bjarni is one hundred percent certain that mm-hmm. not only is he dealing with an honorable man. He's dealing with someone who's who's strong enough to be a good soldier right. in his army. Um, but he's also not dealing with a sycophant. Right. And I think that's really important. That's an important part of this dance. Uh, there's a little bit of that quality that you see in some of the outlaw tales um, uh, in in Iceland, but also in England, right? The Robin Hood stories. Yeah. Where to join Robin's band, you have to best him at something. Yes. He doesn't, he doesn't want to surround himself with, you know, People who aren't going to be useful to him. In other words, people who can only do the things that he himself can do better. Yeah. Uh, right. So in this case, Bjarni wants to see that Thorstein is the kind of man who can hold his own against Bjarni. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in this sense, I think Bjarni comes off really, really well. Mm-hmm. We can complicate our picture of Bjarni by looking more Let's deeply. Not. Let's not. I just admire him. William Ian Miller does an excellent job of analyzing this <laughs> yeah. this whole story. And one of the things he he kind of points out is that the line from Thorstein's father, the grumpy old Viking, about mm-hmm. power and the power dynamics at play when right. you're dealing with a chieftain uh, with uh, Bjarni's kind of authority. Right. Th- that you were, it were not, it's not an even playing field. 
Mm-hmm. And this speaks to some of the things that are going on in the 13th century. So right. William Ian Miller kind of – he leads towards a conclusion in his chapter asking a question like this. Are we being given a brief justificatory glimpse of processes and structures that enabled a certain class of men to augment their power and gain greater control over the lives of women and other men? And the point he's trying to make here through this question is that – Bjarni may look good on the surface, Mm -hmm. but at all points in this story, he holds all the cards. And at the very end of the story, he gets what he wants. He gets a strong man brought into his farm, but it's a man he controls. He controls Thorstein, and he also absorbs the farm that was neighboring his his territory. So Mm -hmm. he's expanded his sphere of influence and also his holdings. By the end of the saga, which is something that, you know, if you read the contemporary sagas that we, we see quite frequently, that's how the uh, the major families consolidated power was this kind of thing. So is Bjarni, right. he appears to be a good character, but is the saga, if you read it more carefully through that lens, is he a more complicated, perhaps less morally pure individual? Well, no, I think obviously like any good saga figure, he's a complicated man. I mean, it's, you know, we're not talking about... Um, stories in which the figures are usually reducible to one motivation or one sort of characteristic, right? That's the strength of saga writing. Yeah. Uh, But in this case, I I could just as easily make the argument, and I think I actually would make the argument, that Bjarni also may see in Thorstein a little bit of himself. Mm. Uh, I mean, these are two men who go out of their way to avoid violence, even when someone else is provoking them. Uh, these remember we saw with Bjarni, where um, he tried over and over again to avoid confronting Thorkel, uh, the son of the man he'd killed, uh, and refuses to take advantage of opportunities to kill Thorkel when he does have the chance. Yeah, uh, that this is he sees in in Thorstein Staffstruck another man who, when hit with a staff in public, binds up his brow. And walks away, right? Yeah. Tries to avoid that physical confrontation even when he has the chance. And of course, we know later on that when it comes to Thorstein and Thord fighting one another, Thor didn't have a chance. Yeah. So Thorstein walked away from a fight that he was going to win in order to avoid violence. Hang on a second. It's established at the very beginning of the saga mm-hmm. that uh, Thorstein is a very large man. He's definitely yes. his father's son, but in yes. temperament, not so much. But I think, again, we find that these two you know, have a link. They have difficult fathers. They have a troubling past in which their fathers are violent men, aggressive men, and push them right to be like them. Uh, Bjarni and Thorstein both find a way to kind of break that cycle. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so I think there are ways that Bjarni sees in Thorstein kind of himself without the advantages of birth that made him the son of a chieftain. Yeah, absolutely. It pays to to read really closely into this and, and to think about this. I, I'll mm-hmm. offer a, like a compromise between the two readings where Bjarni could be bad uh, or represent something bad, but also yeah. something good. I, I think the way that I read it is that Bjarni is, is more of an exemplar for chieftains in the 13th century. This mm-hmm. saga acknowledges the possibility that there are chieftains out there that will take advantage of people and will absorb their property. But Bjarni, mm-hmm. if you read it from beginning to end... I think he emerges as a character who is on the right side of things, and he does things the right way. And so right. he, he, does, he doesn't he, shy away from his power. 
Uh, no, but but he uses he it responsibly, use it nefariously, exactly, and ethically. Um, yes. And so, so in, in that way, it's a it's a it's a story that that tells Godar uh, of mm-hmm. the of the 13th century. Mm-hmm. This is how you could behave with your power, right? Um, but we also acknowledge through Thorarin's kind of commentary the way that you often do behave, right? Uh, excellent. And with that, our first episode of Saga Shorts comes to an end. It may not have been quite as short as we'd hoped. But, you but, know. but, you know, we spent the first part talking about Fatir and right. what a Fatir is or is not and determined that it is is or is not whatever you want is it a, to be. Is a lot of things. <laughs> uh, so uh, next time around, we'll just jump right into the story and these episodes will be a lot shorter than this one. All right. Sure, it will be. It will be. Un- until then, uh, look for our next episode of Saga Things soon. Uh, we'll be starting a, I think, two-part summary of the Saga of the Sons of Droplog. Yes, uh, it's not a long saga, but there's enough good stuff. It's really quite good with good set pieces and battles. Um, We wanted to do it some justice. So while you wait uh, for that to come out, go pick up a copy of Hrofenkel's Saga and other tales from Penguin and read a few Thatcher for yourself. Oh, that's right. I'm sure uh, I'm pretty sure Thorstein Staffstruck is in there. It is. It's right after Hrofenkel's Saga. So uh, there's lots of other great ones in there. Excellent. And we're going to skip over the fact that you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod or on Facebook where we are Saga Thing Podcast. Oh, we're doing this routine again. <laughs> yes, we, we mustn't mention that. Yeah, and we shouldn't mention that we've also got a brand new Saga Thing shop up and running now. I'm adding stuff to it, but uh, we've got some nice gear already there for you to purchase should you be so inclined. There are mm-hmm. Saga Thing shirts and mugs, and it can be uh, nice conversation starters if you want. There you go. And of course, we're looking for any ideas or designs you might have or might want to see at the store. Uh, It can be something from the podcast or just something saga related, if you like. Uh, We're here to serve you. Exactly. And I want to note, this is important. We don't really make any money on these items at the store. I have purposely kept (laughs) the prices near the minimum that we can keep them. Uh, We Mm -hmm. get something like maybe 50 cents for every item sold. Wait, and we don't sell much. What 50 cents? I haven't (laughs) (laughs) haven't seen any of them. Hey, wait a second. Yeah, this That's because really we haven't is. sold anything, John. Right. It's uh, it's more for fun than profit. Yeah. So get yourself something nice and wear it or use it. Any idea what thou here we're doing next? Uh, not a clue, John, but mm. there's plenty of time to figure that out. So until then, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye for now. 